All right, we are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul here. If you want to yell at us, we're on Twitter at polytheorypod. Our emails and dot um dot other stuff at gmail dot com. Uh, and if you love us, you can go to Patreon dot com slash polytheory uh, and um other stuff and check us out over there. Today we are doing a article by Wendy Brown called "American Nightmare: Neoliberalism." neoconservatism and de-democratization we're excited to jump into this article that she wrote or was published in 2006 paul do you want to start her off um all right uh and just on a quick side note um i'm not positive for mike but i do want to give a quick shout out to mark fisher um for at least guiding me towards who wendy brown is um so uh in part we are using kind of some of our previous reading um to uh, inform us where maybe some good spots to go forward would be. Um, so if you recognize the w- name Wendy Brown, and of course you're an avid listener, part of it would be because she is uh, referenced within capitalist realism. And so, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and get her started. Uh, so uh, the opening, this is just kind of a little opening uh, description, which is uh, neoliberalism and neoconservatism are two distinct political rationalities in the contemporary United States. They have few a few overlapping formal characteristics and even appear contradictory in many respects. Yet, they converge not only in the current presidential administration, but also in their de-democratizing effects. Their, respect devaluation, their respective devaluation of political liberty, equality, substantive citizenship, and the rule of law in favor of governance according to market criteria on the one side and valorization of state power for putatively moral ends on the other undermines both the culture and institutions of constitutional democracy. Above all, the two rationalities work symbiotically to produce a subject relatively indifferent to veracity and accountability in government and to political freedom and equality among the citizenry. All right, well, I guess we know where we're headed. Uh, keywords uh, would be neoliberalism, neoconservatism, democracy, and de-democratization. Beginning the article, Stuart Hall recently suggested that the various powers and rationalities configuring the present would be uh, would be better grasped according to the logic of dream work than the logic of philosophical uh, entailment. Good call. The idea, no doubt, is to avoid imposing a monological, internally consistent, temporally linear, and systematic frame on that which is none of these things. But Hall's provocative suggestion is also difficult to follow, and not only because of DreamWorks' complexity. Certainly, there is this complexity, according to Freud. Dreams do not merely mediate between the jumble of life experiences and a pre-existing unconscious formation, but are practiced on behalf of the organism. This is their work, in ways that exceed such mediation and actually reconstruct elements of the unconscious. But the figure of DreamWork taken up for political analysis also promises to puncture the conceit of our innocence and virtue. Dreams often tell us things we would rather not know about ourselves, and particularly revealing identifications and desires we consciously disavow. Patterning political analysis after dream work thus threatens to puncture a left political moralizing impulse that wants everything the right stands for to be driven by nefariousness, smallness, or greed, and everything we do to be generously minded and good, an impulse that casts us and them in seamless and opposing moral political universes. 
I think that's obviously a really important part of it, um, that us and them, we know what to do right. It's too bad you can't get on board, but we'll, we'll explain it to you. Uh, not through anything outside of the stream work, but we'll get it through to you. Hall's challenge to break with monological, totalizing, and linear accounts, then, is impeded not simply by an intellectual hangover from an episteme in which power was figured as unified, systematic, and purposeful, but also by a difficulty in left desire. This is a difficulty we can redress only through a willingness to reckon with the incoherent, multiply sourced, and unsystematic nature of political orders and rationalities on the one hand, and to avow identification and affinity with some of what we excoriate on the other. If, for example, many on the left share the rightest ambition to secure cultural and political hegemony and impose a moral order, such anti-democratic impulses bear careful scrutiny, even they especially, as all sides adorn themselves in the robes of democracy. Uh, that's a really good point. She kind of goes on to it more just as far as uh, this adorning yourself in the robes of democracy um, while also kind of pushing forward things that are, are anti-democratic in nature, i.e. imposing a moral order uh, that go along with the political hegemony. The problematic of this essay is well suited to the analytics of dream work. This is the problematic of thinking together American neoconservatism, a fierce moral political rationality, and neoliberalism, a market political rationality that exceeds its peculiarly American uh, instantation and that does not align exclusively with any political persuasion. Uh, once again, neoliberalism not aligning exclusively with any political persuasions. The aim is not to understand the project of the American right tout court as if there were such a unified endeavor or entity behind it, but to apprehend how these two rationalities themselves composite inadvertently converge at crucial points to extend a cannibalism of liberal democracy already underway from other sources in the past half century. Nor is the aim to sentimentalize liberal democracy as such, but rather to grasp the implications of its waning as a political form, and even to pose a question about whether democracy continues to have a meaning as a term or aspiration. And it, it is kind of, for me, a little wild to think how much neoliberalism is waning. Uh, it's still clearly the hegemony, but so few people will admit to their alliance with it publicly if that, or political figures if that. Maybe I'm way off base, but I feel like it's still definitely how our government works, i.e. look at current aid pack packages, things of that nature. They're all geared towards the market. Very rarely are they geared towards the individual. You know, things like the GME stocks and things like that. Obviously, uh, it's not a popular sentiment among as Americans as it used to be that the market will fix it on either side. So I think that was a good call out for an article that's um, approaching 15 years old. But I'll also say that um, I don't think neoliberalism was like um, named by its creators, right? I think it was named by the people that were observing it and critiquing it. So I don't think, I think honestly it's been until very recently that anyone has called themselves a neoliberal. That's true. Uh, yeah. Or if yeah, they did, I it think... was often with like a deep misunderstanding of like what that term meant. Um, right. I've encountered, right. and I myself I mean, have misused it, and you know, maybe not for a while. But I think when I first encountered the term, I just thought it was like a, an even more progressive form of liberal, if you will. Just had no yeah. actual attachment to what the word meant, um, which uh, put me in some interesting situations. <laughs> uh, and even now, like I encounter people 
who when they hear the word neolib automatically associate themselves with it without necessarily knowing what the term is um and then get almost like defensive about it uh and then you explain what or i explain what i view a neoliberal is and they're like oh no 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 that's not me but you know it's a it's a hard habit to break i guess or uh, a hard yeah. word to not misuse or misunderstand in our current political discourse uh, or maybe yeah. not immediately current but within let's say the last five years or 10 years yeah or whatever. i also resent the use of tout court really okay why <laughs> just just because it, uh, as far as I could tell, it just means uh, simple or uh, quite short, okay, and or and nothing else. And it's like, dude, all of those words you could just use instead of tout court, and then I don't have to look it up. Yeah, you know, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, thanks, Wendy. Yeah, thanks, Miss Brown. Uh, if, if, as I have suggested elsewhere. The institutions, as well as the political culture comprising liberal democracy, are passing into history. The left is faced both with the project of mourning, what it never wholly loved, and with the task of dramatically resetting its critique and vision in terms of the historical uh, supersession of liberal democracy, and not only of failed social experiments, uh, which is a pretty big thing. Uh, and I think we're kind of watching it uh, in the year 2021. Um, you know, we obviously do have some more progressive arms of the DNC, um, that are currently just, um, very much at odds with, with the, uh, overarching neoliberal, uh, tendencies of the party. <clears throat> uh, this essay does not pursue these projects of mourning or revisioning rather. It reframes them, their <clears throat> it frames their nece necessity by exploring the forces of de-democratization produced at the intersection of neoliberal and neoconservative rationalities in the United States. <clears throat> what are some of the accidental symbiotic effects of the convergences between these two rationalities? Effects that not only hijacking, hijack the meaning of democracy to sanction permanent and extreme class divisions, managed and bought political life, power concentrated in links between corporate and governing elites and imperial statism, but also destroy the foundation of democracy in the cultivation of a people's needs, desires, and orientation toward power and powerlessness. What elements of left protest against these rationalities might reiterate these effects? The essay is concerned, then, less with the ostentatious clear-cutting of democratic institutions represented, for example, by elements of the USA Patriot Act, court stripping, regressive tax schemes, schemes, certain practices of homeland security, anti-immigrant policies, or corrupt electoral practices, than with the hollowing out of a democratic political culture and the production of the undemocratic citizen. This is the citizen who loves and wants neither freedom nor equality, even of a liberal sort, the citizen who expects neither truth nor accountability in governance and state actions, the citizen who is not distressed by exorbitant concentrations of political and economic power, routine abrogations of the rule of law, or distinctly undemocratic formulations of national purpose at home and abroad. This is the hollowing out that confronts us as a sustained political condition, no matter how low Bush's star sinks, and no matter which party prevails in the upcoming 2006 midterm elections. Um, God, so well worded and still. Uh, why uh, I feel so much frustration today, uh, you know. Um, I think she just summed up uh, a very good, that's a very good summary uh, of what I 
also see to be kind of the average political participation uh, of an American citizen. Uh, they don't pay enough attention. Um, they don't seem to see any problem with the actual problematic things. Uh, and we, you know, get kind of tied up in, in arguing over uh, shit like transgender sports, which is uh, important to the people involved. And I'm not saying that that's not something that needs to be defended, um, but uh, perhaps there are larger uh, systematic things that we could be addressing as well things of that nature that was probably a terrible example but uh hopefully no i think it i think it's okay i think it's okay um i had to look up abrogation or whatever um and it's the the repeal or abolition abolition of a law right or agreement um so there you go so thinking neoliberalism and neoconservatism together we begin with a set of formal concerns about the relation between a neoliberalism contoured by globalized capital, but given a particular twist in each local context where it dwells, and a distinctly American neoconservatism that also has cousins in other fundamentalist and religiously inflected responses to late modernity, but is homegrown and internally diverse even in the American context. How does a rationality that is expressly amoral at the level of both ends and means, neoliberalism, intersect with one that is expressing moral and regulatory, neoconservatism? How does a project that empties the world of meaning, that cheapens and deracinates life and openly exploits desire, intersect one centered on fixing and enforcing meanings, conserving certain ways of life, and repressing and regulating desire. How does support for governance modeled on the, on the firm and a normative social fabric of self-interest marry or jostle against support for governance modeled on church authority and a normative social fabric of self-sacrifice and long-term filial loyalty, the very fabric shredded by unbridled capitalism? And what might be the role of evangelical Christianity on one side and hyper-demonized enemies to the American state on the other in facilitating this marriage. Again, the search here is not for a single or coherent logic, but for an understanding of the effects of two disparate streams of rationality in producing the contemporary landscape of political intelligibility and possibility. This involves discerning sites of social and psychological vulnerability, exploitability, or orientation that, that they respectively trade or draw on in one another. What effects of power, legitimacy, or authority consequent to one rationality become root soil for the other? As the figure of DreamWork would suggest, the aim is to discover what might appear as logical contradiction at the level of ideas to be grasped as particularly and unsystematically symbiot symbiotic at the level of political subjectivity, and thus to depart from analysis that either distinguish values, talk from material interests, or reprise notions of, quote, false consciousness, 
the uh, uh, the essay first maps uh, select elements of neoliberalism and neoconservatism, then considers their collisions and convergences, and concludes with a brief reflection on how fundamentalist Christianity as an emergent idiom of public life compounds the de-democratizing force of these two rationalities. So it's just like... Um, the framework that she's using for the essay. For sure. And this is all out of my ass and anecdotal. I do wonder if those intersections and especially the intersections that uh, I would say really occurred. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking from my own personal level, not from an academic scholarly level, but um, <clears throat> it seems like they got along the most um, kind of from Clinton through the first term of Obama. I would say. Um, and I almost wonder if it was those similarities that they felt with each other that caused this extreme polarization at this stage, like, you know, kind of starting with maybe the Tea Party to now um, of just being like, hold on, we are way, way different. Um, maybe not in any policies, but let's let's go back to the moral fabric of why we are different and just hammer that shit in and forget that anything else exists um, is a lot of what it feels like when I watch like Fox News or, uh, you know, Newsmax or whatever. It's never talking about anything relevant. It's just like what moral parts. I think that's why. I mean, I think that's a function of neoconservatism and neoliberalism still being connected because the neoconservatives can't talk about what the negative impacts of neoliberalism because the neo the people that own the fucking uh, media companies are still pro neoliberalism right they're still pro privatization like the negative effects of neoliberalism are what neocons like <laughs> if you will uh, well, I, I would say I, if no, I don't think so. I think somewhat. Well, maybe. Yeah, maybe what neocons. I mean, maybe like the market effects, the fact that neoliberalism sets up a framework where you can potentially say you deserve to be there. The market decided you should be there and I don't have to do anything about it um, is I think the part that they like the most about it. And since neither party can really talk shit on that aspect, they have to talk shit about the nonsensical, non-important shit. Um, and I, I don't mean non-important, but I mean like shit that should have already been decided that we should be able to move on. Um, as it, you know, like re-questioning gay marriage, re like, dude, shut up. We moved on, but you can't focus on any policies because y'all agree that fucking letting the market fuck poor people, uh, is, is the way that we should go. Obviously that was, a uh, uh, obscene, um, summarization of it, but yeah, no, hopefully it, it made some sense. um, neoliberalism. Is the next section. I have argued elsewhere that in order to comprehend neoliberalism's political and cultural effects, it must be conceived of as more than just a set of free market economic policies that dismantle welfare states and privatize public services in the North, make wreckage of efforts at democratic sovereignty or economic self determination in the South, and intensify income disparities everywhere. Certainly, neoliberalism comprises these effects. But as a political rationality, it also involves a specific and consequential organization of the social, the subject, and the state. A political rationality is not equivalent to an ideology, to an ideology stemming from or masking an economic reality. 
nor is it merely a spillover effect of the economic or the political or the social. Rather, as Foucault inflected the term, a political rationality is a specific form of normative political reason organizing the political sphere, governance practices, and citizenship. A political rationality governs the sayability, the intelligibility, and the truth criteria of these domains. Thus, while neoliberal political rationality is based on a certain concept, a certain conception of the market, its organization of governance and the social is not merely the result of leakage from the economic to other other spheres, but rather of the explicit imposition of a particular form of market rationality on these spheres. Neoliberalism as a form of political reasoning that articulates the natural or sorry the nature and meaning of the political, the social, and the subject must be underscored because it is through this form and articulation that its usurpation of other moral democratic rationalities occurs. I think, although I don't fully understand all of that stuff, I think that uh, I would like to know the difference. I wish you would like break down the difference between an ideology and um, a, uh, what was it called? A uh, political uh, rationality. No, political rationality. Uh, the, it says a, a political... Ra- she oh, says, okay. uh, you know, as Foucault inflected the term, a political rationality is a specific form of normative political reasoning organizing the political sphere. And then it says, uh, where is it? She says something about how it's not an ideology. It's, yeah, uh, but as a political rationality, it also involves a specific and consequential organization of the social, the subject, and the state. A political rationality is not equivalent to an ideology stemming from or masking an economic reality, uh, nor is it merely a spillover effect of the economic on the political uh, or the social. So I'm just, from what I gathered from it, which is obviously probably not correct, is that neoconservatism, or if you're not neoliberalism, it's not necessarily connected to the economic reality of what's happening, um, or like masking or whatever. Whereas neoliberalism, uh, to me, and maybe that's not what this paper is suggesting at all, almost feels like it was a creation to justify the market, if that makes sense. Like to make, like maybe that people felt that the average person's acceptance of the market or whatever waning um so they created neoliberalism has like hey it wasn't the market's fault it was everything that wasn't the market's fault so you've spent this time um being mad at the market so they use neoliberalism as kind of a way to mask that it was the market's fault using policies or whatever to justify the market or to make the market appear better um and to make any government interference or things of that nature seem to be the villain um when it, the reality is probably that it's it's maybe the opposite something of that nature whereas neoconservatism can base things on morals things that just have no tying to to actual economic uh, policies maybe that would be my best guess but i have no real idea uh what are the salient features of neoliberal political rationality first in the contrast with classical economic liberalism and it is important to remind American readers the liberalism, in quotes, of neoliberalism refers to economic rather than political liberalism. Neoliberalism is not confined to an expressly economic sphere, nor does it cast the market as natural 
and self-regulatory, even in the economic sphere. Part of what makes neoliberalism neo is that it depicts free markets, free trade, and entrepreneurial rationality as achieved and normative, as promulgated through law and through social and economic policy, not simply as occurring by dint of nature. Second, neoliberalism casts the political and social spheres both as appropriately dominated by market concerns and as themselves organized by market rationality. That is, more than simply facilitating the economy, the state itself must construct and construe itself in market terms, as well as develop policies and promulgate a political culture that figures citizens exhaustively as rational economic actors in every sphere of life. Familiar here are the many privatization and outsourcing schemes for welfare, education, prisons, the police, and the military. But this aspect of neoliberalism also entails a host of policies that figure and produce citizens as in, uh, individual entrepreneurs and consumers whose moral autonomy is measured by their capacity for, quote, self-care, their ability to provide for their own needs and service their own ambitions, whether as welfare recipients, medical patients, consumers of pharmaceuticals, university students, or workers in ephemeral occupations. Uh, yeah, neoliberal political rationality produces governance criteria along the same lines, that is, criteria of productivity and profitability, with the consequence that governance talk increasingly becomes market speak. Business persons replace lawyers as the governing class in liberal democracies, and business norms replace uh, juridical principles. There are myriad examples of this transformation, but perhaps none so poignant as G.W. Bush's remark on the heels of his 2004 re-election. I earned political capital in this campaign, and now I intend to spend it. Spend it he has, of course, to the point of exhausting the coffers. But significant for our purposes is the enormous difference between enacting a public mandate and accumulating individual political capital. The shift to a market rationality in governance is also apparent in the current American administration's blithe reference to, quote, legalisms uh, as something like bothersome mosquitoes flying around the ex executive of foreign and domestic policy. I just think that's really important. Just that concept of its legal uh, requirements, its regulations, it's all of this that's ruining everything. Uh, it's, it's not the process. It's the process is perfect. It's all of you trying to interfere with this process that's fucking it up. If you would just let us do what we know how to do, everything would work out. Uh, just, it's such a gross concept. Where am I? Blah, 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 blah. Um, legalism. Okay. A reference that runs... From responsiveness to the Geneva Conventions for War to the question of how best to secure marriage from invasion by homosexuals. The, and this is in quotes, the lawyers are working on the best approach, Bush said at one point. It is apparent as well in Bush's routine reference to his job as one of, quote, making difficult decisions rather than executing the will of the people a strikingly Schmidtian uh, re-zinification of executive power. Signification, maybe? 
Um, I thought it was resignification, and I'll explain why in a second. But e- either way, it it could be okay, resignification sure. or uh, resignification of executive power in democracy. And so the reason why I think it's uh, resignification is because um, Adolf Schmidt is the Sh- the Schmidtian here that we're talking about, and uh, he was like a um, political theorist that was uh, German in the early 20th century that was like pro-authoritarian and like anti-democracy. The way I read that last part of the sentence is like Bush is through, in a very Adolf Schmidt type way, resigning the executive branch from democracy and taking it to an anti-democratic area. Does that make sense? Okay, and it does. And I think both would work because resignification would just be like re-giving a new meaning to something. Okay, yep. Um, yep. So it could be, I think either one would be okay. Uh, okay. totally legit, actually. And it appeared in Bush's l- likening of massive worldwide protests against the launching of the Iraq War in 2003 to product uh, testing, quote, focus groups. All of these represent a business approach to governing, one in which democratic principles and the rule of law are neither guides nor serious constraints, but rather tools or obstacles, a phenomenon Foucault formulated concisely as the tacticalization of law. Nice. Great, concise formalization, Foucault. (laughs) The saturation of the state political culture, and the social with market rationality effectively strips commitments to political democracy from governance concerns and political culture. Consider, as a class and other impediments to servicing the entrepreneurial self are radically uh, depoliticized, what the neoliberals call the equal right to inequality uh, is newly legitimated, thereby tabling democracy's formal commitment to egalitarianism. Yeah, you all have the right to live these terrible lives, you fucking unskilled pieces of shit. A permanent underclass and even a permanent criminal class, along with a class of aliens or non-citizens, are produced and accepted as an inevitable cost of such a society, thereby undermining a formal commitment to universalism. Ah, this is a huge tangent and a huge reach. I wonder how much of that kind of ties into that, that kind of desertification of imagination. Like, we can't figure out how to make this work, so just naturally, this is how it has to be. Uh, you have to be uh, poor. You have to be a criminal class. Uh, it's yeah. just what you were meant to do. <laughs> uh, thereby undermining... Yeah, so, well, whatever. Um, thereby undermining a formal commitment to universalism. Uh, civic and legal principles securing the political, as opposed to private, autonomy of citizens, such as, the enumerated in the, such as those enumerated in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, have no place in neoliberal schema. Which means that neoliberal political rationality features no intrinsic commitment to political liberty. Citizenship, reduced to self-care, is divested of any orientation toward the common, thereby undermining an already weak investment in an active citizenry and an already thin concept of a public good from a liberal democratic table of values. And, as law is tacticalized or instrumentalized, it is radically desacralized and producing the conditions for its routine suspension or abrogation and paving ground for what Agamben drawing on Schmidt, has formulated his sovereignty in the form of a permanent state of exception. This is evident not only in such events as the openly political decision of the U.S. Supreme Court to halt the Florida recount in the 2000 presidential election, 
a decision markedly uncontested by the populace, or the abrogation of civil liberties in the name of security, but also in the strategic use of civil rights law to dismantle egalitarian projects ranging from affirmative action to progressive taxation. Meanwhile, democracy's underpinning by a free press is loosened on one side by corporate ownership and on the other side by laws tactically invoked to shield political officials, but not journalists, from revealing sources or leaking classified information. Equality, universality, political autonomy, and liberty, citizenship, the rule of law, a free press. However inadequately realized over several centuries of constitutional democracy in the Euro-Atlantic world, these are its fundaments. And these are what neoliberal political rationality jettisons, or at least severely challenges with its alternative principles of governance. Dude, so on point. Yeah, fucking unbelievable. And uh, just uh, on a side note, if you're listening to this uh, and this is your first deep dive into some of these terms, uh, it might be worthwhile to um, figure out if you really are on board with this kind of thought or if it just was a catch-all term that you had previously been using. I only say that because those are things from my life, uh, and I am glad that I am no longer yeah. stuck in those ruts. What do you mean, like with calling people neoliberals when they're not? Or yeah, th- yeah, that, and um, you know, I spent a good amount of time misunderstanding what neoliberalism meant and looking at it through almost like yeah. a positive lens. Like while Obama was in office, if somebody had asked me if I was a neolib, um, without really understanding what it meant, I probably would have probably okay. been like, yeah, of course. So uh, that kind of stuff. So obviously, not everybody is as ignorant as me. But um, I do think that they are terms that are used very often. Uh, we haven't fully gotten into neoconservatism. You'll have to stay with us for that. I think they're, for me and maybe uh, some other people out there, terms that you kind of just accept at face value without really realizing what the implication is. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to diving into uh, neoconservatism next time. Well, once again, thanks for listening and have a great day.